0: Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory. And again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And we're looking at Exodus, and we've gotten all the way up to and through Exodus 13. I'll do a little bit of a review of Exodus 13 because there's some important uh, important points that uh, we came across in Exodus 13 that really is missed by so many people throughout religion, throughout churchanity if I may use that word, (laughs) throughout what people think is the faith of Jesus Christ or the faith in Jesus Christ, as well as many of the people that have a more Judaic uh, heritage and they miss it with Moses. Uh, They did not understand what Moses was actually trying to teach the people when he brought them out of the bondage of Egypt. They didn't necessarily, many Jews don't even know why they were in the bondage of Egypt. They they follow the trail back in the biblical text, in the Torah, in what Moses supposedly wrote down, according to some people. Of course, many archaeologists and even many uh religionists today think that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. They can't imagine that he wrote it. They think it was all... It's literally not even a true story that it didn't exist, that the events, the historical events didn't happen because they look at Egyptology and they determine that, well, none of this stuff happened in the history of Egypt. We know all about the history of Egypt and none of this happened. Well, they... They look back at the history of Egypt through the textbooks that they had in college and through the archaeological discoveries that other men made and the bits and pieces that they pulled together, what one archaeologist calls uh rags and, uh, I think, it, it, like chards, rags and chards, uh, bits and pieces of the history of Egypt, and they put this all together. I mean, they have... Things sketched on temples. I mean, we have things sketched on temples, much older temples that uh, reach way back in time in places like India and Burma. And, uh, they talk about people having flying machines uh, and, uh, those things, uh, come about and, and dominate the people and abuse the people. <laughs> and so is that, that, that true too? Are we going to look at that history as well? <laughs> there 's a lot of people who look at that history and you know and then they talk about ancient aliens and uh, building the pyramids and and putting the stones in South America that, i mean these huge monolithic stones that are put up up on the edge of mountains <laughs> clearly taken from another mountain way off across the valley up the side of a very steep mountains. Placed together where you can't even get a razor blade between them. And they're gigantic stones. Clearly carved, clearly placed together. And they say, well, how, how do we do this? And, and this is ancient temples. So there's a lot. Uh, the, the only thing that, you know, you can guess all you want as to who put them there and how they were put there. And, and there's lots and lots of guesses out there. And, one or two of them might be true. They can't all be true. But the, the point I'm making is we don't have all the details of what went on in the past. Archaeologists like to think they do, but then when you corner them about different things, as we said in earlier programs, uh, top, uh, archaeologists, uh, respond that, you know, all they have is chards and rags the pieces and rags uh, to determine what went on in the past. And we don't have to go all the way back to Egypt to learn from the past. And we have, you know, of course, the stories of Jesus. Of course, there are, there are guys out there saying Jesus never existed. And that the Bible was written by the Romans in order to control the people. And, you know, they have all kind. There's all kinds of theories out there. And you can get lost in the jungle of these theories as to what is true and what is not true. And of course, we talked briefly in the afternoon show last week about uh, people who are agnostics and uh atheists who, who don't want to believe that there is any uh thing as spirit, that there is a god at all in nature. And, uh, we'll, we'll probably revisit that topic a number of times and I've got some things coming up, uh, that I'll be talking about, you know, where they talk about intelligent design and there's, there's some really intelligent, uh, scientists that have been talking for a number of years about intelligent design. They're not overthrowing uh, some of the theories of evolution and natural selection, natural selection is very real. We see that taking place all the time. Anybody who's a herdsman like myself know that, you know, if, if certain animals don't measure up to the strains of their environment, they die out. Their species dies out and no longer, you know, I shouldn't say their species, their family, that lineage of you know, a particular sheep or a particular cow or maybe even a coyote, they will die out if they don't measure up to the challenge in their environment. I heard a epidemiologist talking about one of the best things you could do. Actually, I've heard this before from Nobel Prize winning epidemiologists speaking in Switzerland, receiving their, their prize. Uh, they said the best thing you can do for your child's immune system and health was to let them play on the floor. (laughs) That that was their recommendation. That was the best thing that you could do for your child's health. It wasn't vaccinations. It wasn't uh, antibiotics. it, It certainly wasn't keeping them from the challenges of life. But it was allowing them to meet the challenges of life step by step as they're growing. There's lots of studies now that small children that are kept from having their immune systems challenged at all become less healthy. I mean, AMA has come out with studies that show that a child that has ready access to pharmaceutical antibiotics is plagued with lots more uh, illnesses, uh a lot more infections, or respiratory infections, cold infections, etc., flus, etc., because they don't develop their own immune system. I had a brother who actually had to wear leg braces when he was a kid, and I, I never quite figured out exactly what it was all about. I was the younger brother, so I... But I did see the leg braces one day when I was a little older, and I said, what are these? (laughs) And he said, why, I used to have to wear those. And why was that? Uh, Well, you know, and I never got, his legs were bowing or something like that. He was a little heavier uh, than most of uh, my siblings and most of my kids. I don't know why he was a little bit chubbier, but uh, for some reason, some doctor thought that he had to, wear them and do other things and there was question as to whether this doctor knew what he was talking about because you know it's kind of you get you get three doctors in the same room and you often will get three different opinions (laughs) as to what's going on I heard a doctor talking about uh, the immune system also in another venue and uh, he was quoting a study where they discovered that children who had uh, access to, you know, a pet in the household, uh, as they followed these children over a period of time, they found that they had more robust immune systems because they had a pet. When the pet actually came into the house on a regular basis, their immune system was even stronger. But the child who had no pet and did not, wasn't allowed to play out in the yard and get exposed to all these things. They had a a much weaker immune system in in a general study with a number of people that they were studying. So it isn't a foregone conclusion, but the, the conclusion was that unless you challenge the immune system of a child, it will not develop to its full potential. And we know this from work. If you don't challenge your muscles, your muscles won't get stronger. If you put your legs in braces, you you know, I mean, Forrest Gump will tell you that it weakens the legs. And in some ways, it may even strengthen the legs because they're constantly carrying around these braces. (laughs) And the body is fighting to develop its muscles and overcome the braces. Well this is a little bit of what was happening in Egypt. The, the people in Egypt, we saw this in the earlier studies of the earlier chapters that that the people of Egypt were not growing in numbers at the rate that the Israelites were growing in numbers. And you could you could contribute this or attribute this to a number of different reasons. But you get into that area of speculation and guessing. But it is very clear, according to the text, that there were more burdens being placed upon the Israelites in Egypt than was being placed upon the Egyptians and the other citizens of Egypt. That there was a prejudice towards the Israelites And that could come from a lot of different reasons. One of the things that I've said recently is that there is no racism, there is no problem with racism in the world today. Racism is not a problem anywhere in the world today. (laughs) Now, of course, lots of people are going to say, that's crazy, there's all kinds of racism, that's a tremendous problem. But really, racism is, there is... People who use racism and abuse races, that's absolutely true. And there are there are races that try to dominate other races. And then after a certain period of time, those races that were dominated will try to dominate the ones that dominated them. And you have this war going on between the races. But the problem isn't racism. The problem is hate. Racism is the excuse. That's the excuse. And, and it's real easy, you know, if you want to hate everybody who has ingrown toenails, say, it's hard to tell who they are, you know, without them taking off their shoes. But if you have a racial trait, you know, like the color of their skin, you can say, oh, well, I hate that guy because he's black and I can see he's black because it's really obvious. You know, and so therefore, racism is an excuse for hatred, but hatred is the problem. It isn't race that's the problem. It's hatred that is the problem. And we can carry that over to the woke generation who now are, are preaching, it's bad that you're white. <laughs> you know, this critical race theory. And it's actually preaching hate. It's preaching judging somebody according to the color of their skins because the white people are now bad. But it's just hate is the problem. It isn't the color of people's skin. It isn't race. Race is a made-up concept. You know, they said, well, let's see. Let's divide the people up into races and we can say, oh, well, this person is dark skin. So we'll make that a race. (laughs) And this person is got another tinge to their skin or shape to their skull or slant to their eyes and we'll make that another race. It's an invented concept. But hatred has been around since Cain. And of course, that's what Moses was writing about because I do believe that Moses wrote the Bible, uh, wrote the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And I, I we've gone over a lot of the reasons why I say that. You know, because... You know, you you listen to these people that are saying, well, Hebrew wasn't invented yet. Uh, well, how do they know? They only got r- chards and rags. <laughs> and now we find carvings of Hebrew letters that go way back, possibly to the time of Joseph. So somebody was writing those Hebrew letters. You know, oh well, we don't want to look at that. that's an anomaly you know that's a that's a bizarre thing and so and besides, when I went to school, this is what they said <laughs> you know, so so you're you're always fighting the people who have a diploma somewhere, you know, like the scarecrow who suddenly thinks he can think because he has a diploma, and uh the reality in my experience is a lot of people have the diploma that can't think at all. <laughs> They actually, you will find them accusing. I saw a debate between uh, somebody who is advocating, you know, intelligent design, and somebody else who's advocating Darwin uh, evolution only. That that's how we were created through the chemical processes and reactions of evolution. And it was very interesting. You, you we first they asked, can you summarize your? You're thinking of, of what it means to have intelligent design, and he gave a very articulate answer. And uh, and then they asked the other guy why why he disagrees with the intelligent design, and what is his you know in a paragraph uh, summary of how why he disagrees with that. And he said it's dogma. He says it's not science; it's dogma. But the reality is, he has a dogma. He can't. He can't give an articulate explanation. That's what you always hear them saying, is that uh, you know, well, it, the, the science is settled. <laughs> science is a process of exploration and discovery, and challenging what you think you discovered yesterday to determine if it continues to hold up with what you discovered today. And science is that process. Anybody who says the science is settled isn't a scientist. They're dogmatic. They have turned the process into dogma. So they are doing often exactly what they accuse the other people of doing. Now, they will deny that, and many people are probably denying it right now as they listen. <laughs> but that—that that is the case. What I've seen recently in in our own history in the last few years is that we see people that will come up with those prejudicial, hateful arguments, putting them on their opponents before they even open their mouth they will be accusing them of the very thing that they are doing they will they are not practicing science they are actually maybe betraying their own country and they will accuse the other one of doing it and of course there's an old saying that first to cry thief is the is often the thief himself <laughs> because The first thing he's doing is pointing his finger at somebody else. And and they're the most outraged when they themselves are robbed. Uh, Because they say, you can't rob me, I'm the thief. (laughs) Of course, they won't say that. (laughs) But that's, so it's interesting. So when we're looking at this ancient text, we have to be willing to challenge everything that we're looking at. Uh, because everything we're looking at uh, will be ch- challenged by the next thing. And we don't want to turn our, our seeking the truth into dogma. We want to always be indulging, diligently indulging in the process of seeking the truth, you never have truth. You can't if you think you have truth, and you you can put it into your you know your pocketbook or into a bottle, and you can hold it. And now you have truth. That's a that is a vain endeavor that takes you out of the process of seeking the truth. And of course, Christ, you know, his first instruction was to seek the kingdom of God. And his, you know, the righteousness of God. So, his very explanation of what we should be doing is an explanation of a process, seeking. And which is why he also uses words like persevere, you know, and to, you know, to put your hand to a plow, because plowing is this process. And to strive, that's a part of the process. And of course, that's absolutely reasonable if God's kingdom is an infinite kingdom. Because we never really fully arrive. We're always seeking more truth. We never have, we cannot contain the whole truth in our minds, especially. In our hearts, especially as well. So, we have to constantly be seeking it. So, that's what we've been doing as we're going through Exodus is seeking the truth. And what is the truth? And how do we know that what we believe to be true is true? Our interpretation of the scripture, how do we know it is true? And if the scripture is a divinely inspired book... You know, the authors who wrote it down were divinely inspired. I don't always think that the the uh, translators, all the different translators, were divinely inspired. <laughs> I think some of them were quite uninspired. <laughs> And I certainly don't think all the people who use the Bible and teach the Bible, I don't think they're all inspired as well. And I certainly do not believe that everybody who can read the Bible, whether they're reading it in the English or the Greek or, or in the Hebrew or in Hindi, I don't believe that they're all divinely inspired. I believe they all could be divinely inspired. I think that we all have access to what is metaphorically called the holy spirit or the tree of life or the divine revelations of a creator that there is something built into mankind that allows him to see the unseen that he can Jesus talks those who have ears to hear and and eyes to see I think that we have eyes in our head that see light reflected off of objects and we identify objects and we see and we navigate around in this physical world. I believe that we can also see mentally. People can explain something that we cannot see physically and they can describe it and we can listen and we can draw the picture in our imagination and we can see what they're talking about by listening to their words. And maybe their hand gestures. And maybe they'll draw pictures. and But we're not actually seeing the thing. I mean. I, how do I know New Zealand actually exists? Well I've seen digital photos of it. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen movies that talk about it. But how do I know it exists? But I believe that there's also spiritual lies. And not a lot of people won't. But. We're going to explore that, and it'll be up to you, whether you use your spiritual eyes or not. And we'll do that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, anyway, we'll do a quick review of uh, Chapter 13. I've added a lot to that, and... uh well eventually we'll have this whole series and audios along with you know the afternoon show that a lot of times adds more nuance to uh what we talk about in the morning show and so put them all together for a study uh there's talk of uh, the uh, born out of the Exodus study that was done by people like Jordan Peterson and uh Daily Wire and Dennis Prager was there a number of other scholars were there and uh, they did this whole study. And I haven't looked at the whole thing yet, but I was going through it and trying to go through it as I put together this study. Uh But out of whatever they did in the following chapters I haven't listened to yet, <laughs> uh, which will become available, I guess, uh, on YouTube for a short period of time. I mean, the Daily Wire is in, in the business of making money. It's a commercial Enterprise, and so they're doing that for that reason. But, you know, when anybody's talking about these things that should be important to us all, oh, we should be willing to listen to them and hear what they have to say and use them as a sounding board for our own quest, our own seeking of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Moses was setting the captive free from... This idea of being in the bondage of Egypt where 20% of your labor belonged to the Pharaoh. I mean, the Pharaoh didn't say everybody had to become brickmakers that were in Goshen or in Avaris or wherever they all were. But in Avaris, there was definitely brickmaking because it was strategically located for that. But all Israelites were not probably in Avaris because of the numbers that we're talking about, which is going to be something that we're going to address as we go through 14 and 15. It was, was the number great? Was the number small? Uh Was the journey to the Red Sea long, or was the journey to the Red Sea short? Where was Mount Sinai? Was it in the peninsula? Or was it over there in Saudi Arabia? And those debates are a part of this ongoing exploration of when did Moses' uh, exodus take place? Because there's quite a dispute. I mean, you can go all the way back to Isaac Newton. He thought they had the time frame of exodus wrong. They And because Egyptologists had their time frame wrong. And then Velikovsky, he had another date in mind for a number of, some of the his reasons were very good. I don't agree all the time with Velikovsky, by any means. Um, but also, you know, but I, I'm exploring, I'm willing to listen to them. Uh, David Roll, who we've mentioned several times, and Patterns of Evidence. Uh, they bring up some very interesting points. And new archaeological evidence is being found all the time that kind of back this up. And there is a predominance in the field of archaeology, and especially Egyptology. I don't want to pick on them. Where if something contradicts what they think is True. <laughs> I mean, they just, they just wrote a paper on it. They, they, they got a degree in it and all of a sudden you're saying, oh, if you guys are off by several hundred years. And no, that's not actually where this took place. It took place over here and look what we found over here and, and it challenges them. Well, it could make them stronger, but when they dig their dogmatic heels in, they stifle growth. When they shut their ears and their eyes to new evidence, they stifle growth. But ultimately, the growth that is important, and this is going to be a constant theme, not only with Moses and the prophets, but with Jesus Christ, is that the law they talk about, this law of nature nature's God, this divine design has to be written in your heart and your minds, and if you if you conflict with it, if you are contrary to it, you will lose your way. if you close your eyes you're going to stumble <laughs> so anyway in our Exodus thirteen, we talked about this dedicate to the altars of God for the practice of pure religion and because you know, they're talking about these altars already, and of course if you go back to our studies back in Genesis of the altars of clay and stone, which we have up at Preparing You, you can realize that the altars of clay and stone was not about piling up rocks, killing sheep, and setting them on fire, uh, and, and killing turtle doves, was not what those texts are about. It's not about Catching little birds and slitting their throats and setting them on fire—it wasn't about that. Which is why Jesus was talking about their sacrifices, which had become about that. Now, even even at the time of the Pharisees, those sacrifices they uh, they understood to some degree that the fair, that the sacrifices they were making was actually part of a social welfare system to take care of the needy of society. What they did not want to look at and they crowded it in their rituals is that you were not to have the leaven of Egypt in your sacrifices. You were not to have the leaven of the Pharisees in your sacrifices. And this is what we see in Exodus 13 is that the same word for leaven also stands for the words of cruelty and grievousness and so when they're talking taking you know making unleavened bread which had some practical purpose to it because it'd be easier to carry and they could make a lot of it and they could get going quickly with it and when they're out on the trail and it appears and we'll get into this that when they're out on the trail headed to wherever they were headed that they were going night and day They were long days of walking and moving. And they may have had, you know, like I said, carts and all this stuff. We know they had ways of moving large amounts of bricks from where they made the bricks to where they needed the bricks. And we knew also that the same carts were probably also used to load large amounts of straw where the straw was made and move it to where the straw needed to be. And they, we know they had, uh, burros or jackasses or donkeys or whatever you want to call them in order to move stuff as well. And so all that stuff was used by them to move across the desert to wherever they were going, which we will get to as we go through 14 and 15. But besides the practical purpose of having unleavened bread, they were supposed to get the leaven out of their quarters, as we see in verse 7 of Exodus 13. The problem with that translation, and there's other ways other ways people translate it, but the word there is this gimel, be it, lamad, kaf. From a word that normally is gimel, be it, vav, lamad. So it's it's written slightly different, but every place it is written, Gimel, be it, Lamad, cough. Uh, it's translated borders of a nation. Borders of your nation. And so when they're saying get the leaven out of your quarters there, somebody arbitrarily decided to translate it quarters. Like get it out of your house. And still to this day, thousands of years later, when Orthodox Jews are celebrating the Passover, they make a big deal of getting all the yeast out of their house. And they'll take it over to a neighbor's house or a friend's house that is not Jewish, and they will leave their yeast at that house, and they'll pick it up after the seven days. Because it says, get the 11 out of your quarters. But what it actually says Everywhere else have we translated it the way that word is translated everywhere else. It means get it out of your borders, not out of your house. Why Do, do we have to get all the yeast out of Israel for seven days? <laughs> the, the modern state of Israel? Do they have to get all the yeast out of the whole country? Well, since yeast is in the air everywhere, <laughs> that's not that's not practical. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying to get the cruelty and grievousness out of your nation. Out of the borders of your nation. Out of the the community of your people. Because you don't want to have that cruelty and grievousness that we saw coming from Pharaoh and his servants that was coming upon the Israelites that caused them to cry out. We don't... You're not supposed to become pharaohs in the new land where you go. You're not to oppress one another in the new land where you go. You had to get all the leaven, all the cruelty out of your nation. Well, they didn't know how to do that yet. But they were going to learn or die. So anyway, in verse 8 we see this where they talk about this message of getting the cruelty out. They they were to do a memorial. You know, some sort of like ceremony or ritual involving unleavened bread and getting, to remind them to get the cruelty and grievous, grievousness out of their nation. But it's not doing a very good job because if you go to the modern state of Israel, they, they pay far more than 20% of their labor to the government. Oh, well, they need that though, right? Right? They need that? Well... I don't think Moses would agree, but, you know, I don't want to argue with him, but that's what I see. What do you see? Uh, When we walk around the elephant in the room is the fact that the whole world has gone after the leaven of the Egyptians because the whole world has gone back into the bondage of Egypt where their labor doesn't belong to them, where they're all slaves in their own nation. And we're seeing that slavery becoming more and more grievous as prices are going up. I heard from somebody who uh uses food stamps. I think he's collecting Social Security, him and his brother. I, I didn't hear the conversation, but somebody was relating it to me. That they, they wanted to get a hold of somebody who's in government to make sure that they protect, you know, and increase our food stamps. Because I don't know if I can make it in the days ahead because inflation is... Raising the cost of food, raising the cost of fuel, raising the cost of everything. And they're on a fixed income. I've always heard people tell me that. So, so I'm on a fixed income. I can't help my mother or my father who needs help because I'm on a fixed income. Well, here I am. I'm not on a fixed income. <laughs> and I'm helping them. So don't give me that as an excuse. But anyway, that's another story. But in verse 9, Moses wants the people to perform this annual ritual just as a memorial. Just to help you remember the principles of caring for one another without the cruelty, without the leaven of Egypt. Uh, to, To take care of one another through faith and hope and charity. Not through the forced contributions of men like Pharaoh or men like Herod. Or men like FDR, or men like Obama, or or men like uh, Trump, because they force the contributions of the people, and we that that can be cruel. And I've seen people actually, you know, couldn't meet the pressure of that forced contribution, and it's it's going to be evidently, judging by history. Looking at what's going on today, that force is going to become crueler and crueler and crueler. That's why they wanted to hire 85,000 new uh, armed IRS agents. (laughs) It wasn't because they weren't going to be cruel. (laughs) It was because they wanted to really force those contributions. So this, the, the other word that I wanted to bring in here that because uh, I've added to the page, if you go to the page on Exodus 13, you'll see some of this stuff. That the word they translate their law. Yeah, if you look at it in in your average Bible software, they'll they'll say that this is the word Torah. And they'll translate it law because it's a common consensus that the word Torah means law. It doesn't really mean law. There are other words they have that they also translate into law. So which word, you know, Moses didn't have, and Joseph who was inventing this language didn't create three, four words that should all be translated into law. Just the same as, like I pointed out, the Romans had several different words translated into law. Sometimes people translate, you know, the word jujurus into law. And they'll also translate legis into law. And it can create confusion. If Moses took the time to... Put down different words in different places. Write Torah one way in one place, but write it Torat in another place. There's a reason for that. You won't see that in your general concordance or, you know, your Bible software or your interlinary <laughs> translations. We're pointing it out. But of course, if you're eating from the tree of life and the Holy Spirit, all I am doing is bearing witness to what you should already know in your heart. And I might be helping some people with their unbelief, but, you know, everybody's a little bit different. You know, some people are on a different place in the path to seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. So anyway, I just pointed out that in, in this text that it's not the word Torah, but Torah. And it's connected to the idea of sacrifice. And sacrifice would include things like Corbin, uh, which is the Hebrew word for sacrifice, and the words like altars, which is where you go to sacrifice. And religion, uh, you know, is your religion public religion or pure religion? Both. Public religion and pure religion require sacrifice. But pure religion is sacrifice by free will offering. And of course that's what Corbin was in the Old Testament. It was free will offerings. There's times when they forced offerings, but then they, they were called foolish for doing that. Samuel calls Saul foolish because he forced an offering. Because it's, that's not the way of God to force the offerings of the people. And what are those offerings for? It's to take care of the needy of society. So either you're taking care of the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity, or you're taking care of the needy of your society through force, fear, and fealty. And if you're doing the latter, you will go back into the bondage of Egypt and tyrants will rise up, rule over you, they won't love you, and they will eventually bring about your death and destruction and probably plagues and everything else they they bring this about one of the plagues they bring about is war another one it will be disease and and I can show you go through step by step and show you how many different ways they can do that there's just so many uh Pharaoh was doing it Nimrod was doing it before Pharaoh Herod was doing it and like I said FDR LBJ all these guys are doing it and and the modern church says it's okay even though to Obtain benefits from men who call themselves benefactors but only are providing you with those benefactions, those dainties of the king through exercising authority one over the other, is by nature a covetous practice. And Peter tells you in the New Testament that the covetous practices will make you merchandise. In other words, entangle you again in the yoke of bondage, which of course it has done. And now that bondage is getting worse and worse and worse. And some people want to cry out. And this is something we'll cover today. Is cry out? How do we get God to hear us? Because if we do go back to Samuel and Saul, (laughs) when Samuel explains what's going to happen if you go this route, a route that Americans have gone and most nations have gone, is that you're going to end up with a government that takes takes and takes and takes and takes and takes and takes. Because you went this wrong way. you didn't you didn't go according to Deuteronomy 17:16. you didn't go according to what Samuel warned you about. and so you end up with a government that takes and takes and takes and takes and takes and takes. and and eventually you're going to cry out, but God says, I'm not going to hear you. But for some reason, God did hear the Egyptians. They went into a bondage. And eventually that bondage became rigorous. And as it became rigorous, the people cried out and God did hear them. Why did God hear those cries and not other cries? What is the difference? I think that's really important for everybody to contemplate on and seek the answer to that. I could just tell you right out. But uh, I think it's better if you seek it, yearn for it, question for it. Just like, as we will cover, when Moses first crossed the Red Sea and they go to the first place to drink water, the water was undrinkable. They couldn't drink the water and the people thirsted and they began to complain. But it was important that people actually thirst so that they can receive Better water. And, of course, we'll talk about living water, which you don't get out of a well. And that's really the water you want to get. Because all the things in the physical universe are expressing something about the spiritual universe. Because according to the biblical text, the spirit came first. And it's the spirit that moved upon the waters and brought the world into existence. And this is going back to the intelligent design people. They're saying there is an unmoved mover. Going back to philosophers, Aristotle, Plato, but you know, all the agnostics and, and, uh, Atheists today think they're smarter than Plato <laughs> and Polybius and Socrates and Jesus and Moses. Uh, they all know better. They have their truth. <laughs> but I, I believe that there is a spiritual unmoved mover, and I believe that our personal union, our personal relationship with that unmoved mover, will give us answers to questions, sometimes before we even ask them, but usually afterwards. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we'll we'll also explore that in the days ahead and, and probably somewhat today. Uh, so at verse 16, the ritual is done in hope of the law being put into your mouth. In other words, what we would see in Hebrews, written upon your heart and upon your mind. Upon the very soul of your being. It's not just memorized where you've got a, a dogma or a doctrine and you repeat the words over and over again and then you have to, you know, energize those words with emotion and you go to a charismatic church or a holy roller church and you stimulate an emotion and that emotion, uh, consummates the ideas in your head and you think you've had a spiritual moment. But the spiritual moment comes much deeper. It's not a, spiritual is not physical. You're not going to find the phys, the spiritual reality by looking in the physical world. You'll, you'll see patterns that may suggest that there's a spiritual reality. And of course, this is why so many people who want to deny a spiritual God that is the divine designer because they want to be the designer. What will happen, we'll briefly get to this, uh, what will happen when you deny the divine designer and you have, what you will, you'll find people saying is that they have their truth. Their truth. You have your truth and I have their truth. And of course it doesn't start there, it usually starts with, let's just agree to disagree. Well, I already agree, we can disagree. (laughs) But when I disagree with you, I think you're wrong. Oh, but that's that's a triggering. I shouldn't say people are wrong. but I think they're wrong. (laughs) And I think I'm right. But I want to also repeat that what I think today is a result of admitting what I thought yesterday was wrong. I had to come to a lot of, you know, moments... Where I said, I was wrong about that. I don't think that's right anymore. I think that's a, you know, and most of those moments were things that I were taught by other people. But occasionally it's things that, you know, conclusions I made myself. I thought that were maybe true. And I don't think they're true today. And so that's very important that, and if, if you create a dogma and if, Everything I say has to fit into your dogma or you don't want to hear it. You know, you put your hands over your ears and hum. You're in your own prison. You're you're not you're not free. You've been imprisoned by your dogma. So anyway, we're gonna start hot and heavy and do chapter fourteen when we come back to Keys to the Kingdom. After another brief break, so come right back and you follow along at preparing you Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom so before we actually begin, I want to read one quote from james one nineteen twenty five and it's kind of going to sum up what we 've already talked about, and it's going to overlay. Itself and what we're going to be studying in, in chapters 14, 15, 16, 17 and on and is this, wherefore my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Now what is the wrath of man? We talk about the wrath of God and like I said, the wrath of God is the consequences of going against the law of nature and nature's God, going against these principles and precepts that Moses is actually going to be trying to teach to people, which we will get to in 15, and what we think is true. So if you already know the truth and you can't, don't think that anything you know could be wrong, probably can't help you. And so you can continue where you're at. And we've already explained where everybody is at is in the bondage of Egypt again. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And you can say it was prophesied, but I believe in Jesus, so everything is okay. But do you really believe in Jesus? Because Jesus talks a great deal about the fact that many will think they're following him, doing things in his name. But they're not. They're actually workers of iniquity. Because their house is full of leaven. They're full of willingness to force one another. Now, on an individual, one-on-one basis, I can explain this in more detail for that individual. But I'm speaking in generalities. But it, this takes us back to... Hate is the problem today. But what is hate? You think hate is anger? And, and, and that wrath of man? No, the wrath of man is the evidence of hate. Just like the wrath of God is the evidence that you've strayed from the law of nature. And nature's God. And right reason. Because they're, those are convertible phrases. Hate... Hate is the absence of love, just like darkness is the absence of light. Your hate is not the problem, it's your lack of love that's the problem. So we just took this idea that the problem is not racism, the problem is hate, but the problem isn't hate, the problem is lack of love. And so this is what Moses is going to try to teach the people how to replace their judgment, their hate, their anger, their fear. Because fear is also a lack. Fear comes when you lack courage. When you when you lack courage, that usually means you, you lack faith. And so therefore you become afraid. If you lack faith, you will become afraid. And how do you cut yourself off from faith? You cut yourself off... What, what did we see with Adam and Eve? As soon as they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they could become gods, they also became afraid. And they went and hid. You see, because they lacked life. They lacked the love of life. And they, and how do we get it back? And, and again, that is just a part of answering the question of how do you cry out to God? Everybody complains about oppression. Everybody complains about evil men in high places. But God's not going to hear your complaints if you're just complaining. You need to add some other factor. And that's what we'll get into later. But to finish the quote, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness, all superfluity of naughtiness. <laughs> well, that We could look into that, but we don't have time. And receive with meekness, The engrafted word, Logos, which is able to save your souls. Engrafted. Now, how do you engraft the word? You memorize it? You repeat it over and over again in your head? No, it has to be written in your heart and in your mind. And and you do this by being doers of the word. It says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Not saying, Lord, Lord, only. You have to actually be a doer of the word. Deceiving your own selves. You can't, and this is what happens. A lot of people are deceiving their own selves. This is "Oh, there's nothing we can do that all we have to do is believe and then we're automatically saved and we can go and do all the superfluity, naughtiness, <laughs> have all the leaven in our house we want and we're saved because we, we we can't do it any. We're just saved by grace. Well, somebody's saved by grace. We're all saved by grace who are saved, but there's a lot of people who think they're saved and they're actually workers of iniquity and Jesus won't have anything to do with them. God won't have anything to do with them. As a matter of fact, if God were really here, the salvation of God was here, you just had to run down this a uh, little plank onto the ship of God, you wouldn't be able to make it to the end of the because th- there'd be too much light, and as you got near the light, you'd see what a wicked superfluity naughtiness person you are, <laughs> how you've been coveting your neighbor's goods and desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor and and putting heavy burdens and cruelty upon your neighbor so that you can have free stuff and and you don't care about your neighbor. You hate your neighbor. You hate your neighbor because you don't love your neighbor. Because you're absent the love of your neighbor. And he goes on to say, For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he holdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Because... He believes he has his truth. (laughs) The gift to see the truth is just that, a gift. If you reject the truth, especially the truth about you, you will have no truth. All the people who think, well, I have my truth, you have your truth, and that person over there has their truth, and everybody has their own truth, they have no truth. There is no truth. There is no standard. There is no right reason. Anything you think is okay. Your dogma is no dogma. Your your God is no God. Is your God? I don't think that's going to work out. I think that's going to end badly. But you go do what you want. And he finishes this statement in James one nineteen twenty five. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he is being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deeds. The perfect law of liberty means you can't force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. You can't go and pray to men to please go to my neighbor's house and force my neighbor to contribute to what I want the free education, the free health care, the free ambulance service, the free this, the free that, whatever it is you want for free, it's not for free. It, you're forcing your neighbor. And I don't care if you vote for Trump or you vote for Biden or you vote for, I don't know, whoever's going to be running <laughs> in the next few years, whoever you want to run. If you're not living according to the perfect law of liberty, you will not be free. And this is what Moses is going to be trying to teach some of the most stiff-necked people in the universe, <laughs> and we're going to see them. So we're going to get right in it with the crossing of the Red Sea. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, "Speak unto the children of Israel that they turn and encamp before uh, Pehiroth between Migdol." And the sea, over against Balzaphon, before it shall ye encamp by the sea. So where are all these places? And that 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 debate has been going on for a thousand years, back in the time of Saul and Solomon. Let's go back to even Solomon. He seemed to know where these places were, and and supposedly. He erected a pillar uh, by the Red Sea on one side of the sea and another one on the other side of the sea. (laughs) And these are marking the space where they crossed the Red Sea. But other people say, no, it was over here because they have to eventually end up at Mount Sinai. And that Mount Sinai that they talk about was designated by Constantine's mom. So obviously it's right. <laughs> and I don't want to pick on his mom. Uh, but uh I'll pick on Constantine, but I won't pick on his mom. <laughs> but... The reality is is we're going to look at some of that, and I have some maps eventually that you can look at. And there's a lot of other people do a lot of work on that, and you can go follow them. But I, I want you to be careful when you go to look at uh, some of the other work that people have done where they mix in the archaeology and their dogma. You need to have your eye on the prize, which is the ways of Christ. You know, early Christianity was called the way, and that way of Christ is... Away without the leaven of the Pharisees. And so you need to be seeking that. And you need to become a doer of the word. So verse 3. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel. They are entangled in the land. The wilderness hath shut them in. And I will harden the Pharaoh's heart. That he shall follow after them and I will be honored. And I include there on the page what word there. Hardened was Chezek, Honored, which is sometimes translated hardened, is Kabad. And I have the definitions there so that you can get the idea. Because... The translators are, are fiddling around. You know, they'll trans, translate Chesek hardened one place and Kabed hardened in another place and then they'll translate it Honored and I've given you the reasons why. So, you, if you need a refresher course, just go over the other recordings that we're putting up along this whole study. So, and I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his hosts so that Whatever this honor is, it's going to be upon all the hosts as well. That the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And so he's just giving you a heads up. He just told you what's coming in chapter 15. And and this is a common thing where they will tell you what's coming. Then they will explain some detail. Then you'll see what's coming came. And then you'll see maybe why. But what you see and don't see depends on whether or not your heart is really filled with true love, or just love of your dogma and doctrine and dogma and your imagination. Because that's is the big danger is that we erect an image of God in our mind, and then we worship that image. You don't just have to create this image in your, uh you know, out of stone and rock. You can do it in your mental. Mind where you create an image of God. So we're going to look at this and try to see if we can see what Moses is really saying. He's told to speak unto the children of Israel that they turn and encamp before uh, certain locations and before they get to the sea, etc. So, and all this is going to lead to something that's going to happen to Pharaoh and to those that follow the Pharaoh and the ways of the Pharaoh. So you don't want to be following the ways of the Pharaoh. And one of the things that you have to do not to follow the ways of the Pharaoh is you got to get all the leaven out of your house. And I'm not talking about yeast. And so you have to also get all the leaven out of your heart because that's really where you got to start. So verse 5, And it was told the king of Egypt that the people fled And the heart of Pharaoh and of his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? We want to force the contributions of those Israelites again. We want to bring them back and make them slaves in our nation. And to serve us and to pay us their tally of bricks. So, you know, like I've said this many times, and I'll do this really quick so that, and we'll explain it more later, that when people, when I first wrote the book, Covenants of the Gods, which is how you go into bondage. Fifteen different ways to go into bondage by making covenants with the gods, which has to do with the Ten Commandments. You're not to make covenants with the gods. You think it's making covenants with statues or something, but no, it's making covenants and why you make those covenants. And There's a lot of reasons. But people said, does this work? And I said, I don't know what you mean. I'm just telling you how you get into bondage. I didn't tell you how to get out. That's in another book. (laughs) All of which are free online, I'm not selling books. But, uh, so, how, how does this work? Well, what it does, what, what all this bondage stuff does, it, it puts you in the bondage of Egypt. And when you want to get out, you have to learn how to cry out. You have to learn how to get the leaven out. You have to come together. You have to care for one another, help one another. You have to do all this stuff. And we'll see how when they leave Egypt, which actually we, we looked at a little bit briefly in 13, where they, they talk about this how they were coming out, and I explained, I've actually added that on the page too, uh, that covers chapter 13, that they were coming out in ranks, in an orderly fashion, and of fives and fifties, and probably tens, because this idea of gathering in tens, hundreds, and 50s, which we see Jesus talking about, is really a part of the same tens, hundreds, and thousands, depending, you know, it was 50s then because they had 5,000 men in their families when he talks about it in Mark. But this idea of gathering in tens goes back way back before Nimrod. It's the oldest form of self government. And the only reason and I'm saying self-government. I'm not saying you're governed by the tens. You're governed by yourself. Because it's a free assembly. But we'll talk more about that later. So the Lord hardened the heart of the Pharaoh. And uh, uh let's go back up here. And it was told the king of Egypt that they were entangled. And they were cornered. And we'll see in the maps what that means. That... that there's actually a word there that means confused, that they were going the wrong way. And there was a standard way to go, which would be along the coastline. But th- he explains why they were to go this other way. But uh they're getting mad because they're realizing they... It was very profitable to force the Israelites to serve them. And now they just, they didn't really expect them to all of a sudden get up and go. And they get up and and laugh. And they realized, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. I thought some of them would go. (laughs) But there were actually even Egyptians going with them. And, of course, those guys will be called traitors. And he made ready his chariots and took his people with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots. And all the chariots of Egypt and captains over every one of them. And these chosen chariots may be important in some of the archaeological discoveries that they're now finding where some people think this crossing took place. But in verse 8 we see, and the Lord hardened, again there's that word, Chezak, the heart of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued after the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with A high hand, which we'll look at some other time, what that high hand meant. Again, God is not taking away the free choice of Pharaoh. He's guiding the people like chess men moving across a board. And this is going to, unless the Pharaoh repents the Pharaoh's going to dig his heels in and do more of the same of what he's already done. And now we see his men actually turning against the Israelites because uh, they were saying, let them go, let them go. And then now all of a sudden they're saying, like, why did we let him go? Why did we let him go? And they want to go and, and punish them. And also we know that they left with huge amounts of gold. And and precious things and flocks and everything. And if we just go in there and kill them and they throw up their hands. And maybe we'll kill all the men mostly. And then we'll take them back and make them service again. And make them better slaves than they were before. Like I said, when I wrote the Covenants of God and everybody wanted to know, does this work? I says what this does is get you down on the shores of the Red Sea. With the Red Sea at your back and all the armies of the Pharaoh coming down on you with everything they got and s- still some people wanted to listen. <laughs> so but what you really want is God between you and the 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 people whose hearts are hardened, who are not going to want to let you go, who have the dogma of hate. And we see that rising up in society. Most uh, uh, when we first started seeing it in a strong strong way, it wasn't white supremacists. It was people in government who hated everybody who didn't want to do things according to their dogma, according to their ways of selfishness. Uh, they wanted to make everybody serving their government in a socialist, even communist state. And, of course, this is what happened in communist Russia. The, the people who were doing all this for the people were now saying, kill everybody who doesn't agree with us. Kill, kill, kill. Don't stop killing. And they killed plenty. So it's the same way in the socialist state of Germany. Same in the communist state of China. And same is what's coming. That is the plague that's coming. Because we haven't been in the, diligent in the way of righteousness. Verse 10. And when the Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians marched after them. And they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. So there's, there's two events here. There's this afraid, uh, which has to do with fear. And there was also the children of Israel who cried out. Is this all the same people? Are there some that are afraid and some crying out with that kind of crying out that we will see Moses doing? That kind of crying out that God does hear? God's not going to hear the whiny crying out. He's going to hear a different crying out. So, that's we're going to have to learn to distinguish that. So, verse 11, And they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore, hast thou dealt this thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? So there's lots of statements here. Are these statements by all the people, or are some of the people talking one way and some of the people talking another? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And so in verse 13... Of this chapter 14. We're seeing Moses tell the people something. That Jesus tells the people too. And Moses said unto the people, fear ye not. Stand still. Remember, be still and know. And see the salvation, the solution of the Lord which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. That 14.14, Exodus 14.14, that's actually carved on my daughter's holster. (laughs) Which says, the Lord shall fight for you and ye shall hold your peace. But now we're in chapter, uh, same chapter, verse 15. And the Lord said unto Moses, wherefore criest thou unto me? So now the God is asking Moses, why are you crying unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. But lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I, behold, I will harden Chazak, the heart of the Egyptians, not just the Pharaoh, but the Egyptians. And they shall follow them, and I will get me honor, Kabad. Upon Pharaoh, and upon all his hosts, and upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. Now, just to point out, we saw that fear not section 13 and 14. Is this all in the same order? We should not think that all the verses that we're reading in the Bible are in a chronological order of the events. For the same reason I showed you at the beginning of this and I showed you in several other chapters where there's a summary and then there's an explanation and then there's the deed and then there's back to the final conclusion. So sometimes what you're seeing that the Lord is going to fight your battle Moses has already told them that in 13 and 14 but God is explaining why (laughs) And 15, 16, and 17, supposedly to Moses. So, yeah, things are not always in the same orders. And that's why I put different headings there on the pages so you can kind of see. These are kind of sections. Uh, I don't want to add that to the text of the Bible, but the Holy Spirit will help you sort this out. If you follow the rest of the instructions of God and begin to eat again of the tree of the knowledge, uh, not of the knowledge of good and evil, but of the tree of life, rather than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So verse 19, and the angel... And there's a particular word there in the Hebrew of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them but it gave light by night to these so that the one came not near the other all night so it's not the same day anymore it's going to be a day and a night and they're safe because there's something between them and the egyptians but we will explore the strong ones when we return to the keys of the kingdom Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, we're trying to get across the Red Sea. Uh, God's going to do something, and Moses is foretelling what God's going to do, but not specifically, just a general reference to what God's going to do. And and so he's giving them a heads up. Of course, when he's writing this, he already knows. So the idea that he puts certain things out of order is a common literary way in which stories were told by people at that time, or at least by Moses, as we read them, and actually you can find other uh texts that were written back in ancient times, and that it, it's a common thing that you see where they're they're giving you a little kind of hints in the text now, a lot of things that Moses is leaving out of the text uh obviously occurred because he's just not telling us every final little minute detail. But he's putting certain verses in for a reason. And sometimes it's part of an allegory to tell you things in the future. And sometimes when you see this, he will repeat it. The same thing twice in a little bit different way. And what that is, is trying to tell you that this is part of a basic principle that we see, you know, where history repeats itself. He's saying that this is something that is repeated over and over again in the history of mankind, at least part of the message that we're giving you. Maybe not the specific details, but part of the message. And, of course, like I said, you know, realizing that we're back in the bondage of Egypt, realizing how we got there, realizing that it's our fault, and... uh, and what does that do if we act upon it according to the instructions that we see coming from Moses and the instructions that we see coming from Christ, which are the same instructions. These are our two witnesses. we got to find out how they are in agreement and do that. It will put us down on the shores of the Red Sea also. But it won't be the same Red Sea that they went to, but it will be something like the Red Sea. And we'll talk more about that as, as they go across. So, verse 21, Moses stretched out his hands over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided, and the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. Now, Cecil B. Mills and a lot of other movie people and cartoon people, they draw this in images, they create special effects where the the seabed, you're actually walking on the seabed down this slope and then up the other side. And the w- water is actually standing as a vertical wall next to you. Now, in the context here, and that may be the case, that it was a vertical wall. I mean, it's really great special effects. Uh, and it makes for a big climax when the water all falls down down on everybody in a second and just just crushes them all instantaneously, all the Egyptians. So that works out really good, but that actually doesn't fit into the story exactly, and we'll we'll talk about that when we get to it. But it, I put in the definition of the word wall there, uh, which is the normal word is chet, vav, mem he, and uh, chama is the word akam. Chama, and uh, depending on how you want to pronounce it, and it it doesn't necessarily mean a wall all the time that it's used throughout the text in in the Bible. It, it can mean a barrier, something like a wall. And if you actually read the text very carefully, and you know word by word and again we're looking at a translation and we can go back and learn Hebrew and read it but you're just going to have to figure out exactly what they're trying to tell you in this in these verses where they're talking about the water you know where Moses puts out his hands and the water parts because he he said that the, the Lord shall fight ...for you, and you shall hold your peace. So now we're in the place where Moses is... There's this dry ground and they can go out. There's actually stories about the guy who uh, who is the first guy to go out. Uh, which is not in the biblical text, but it's extra biblical writings. And But I, I don't know how true it is, and I haven't read that in great detail or anything like that. And it doesn't really matter... What we want to do is find out what the message is, but I thought it was interesting that his name was basically Nun Mem Nun. And this is the guy that first walked out there through this where the water is on the right side and the left side and he's walking on dry ground. And, uh, it, the name is Nun Mem Nun. Nun is the fish. Mem is water. And Nun, again, is fish. <laughs> you know, the fish swimming in the water. So, the first guy out has that name. I'm kind of thinking this is a made-up story. <laughs> but, I anyway, just a little tidbit there. But as we go through, uh, they're going through the midst of the sea in verse 17. And I behold, I will harden Chezak, the heart of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get... The honor upon the Pharaoh and upon his hosts, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. So we see that repetition. And in 18, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, the existing one, that the existing one, again, is this law of nature that exists, just like the law of physics, the law of gravity. And it is has a cause and effect. And so we're seeing that if if we go this route, it's going to have an effect on the mind of Pharaoh because the Pharaoh is stubborn. And I know how the Pharaoh thinks. If you say this to the Pharaoh, he, his heart's going to harden. So we see this with the Pharaoh. Now we not need to see it with ourselves. Are we hardening our hearts because we're digging in our hills and we don't want to believe something different? And certainly in... In Chapter Thirteen, we saw a lot of things like how many people are willing to accept that leaven isn't about yeast. it's about forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare through men who exercise authority one over the other, which Christ forbid his followers to do. If you're doing that, you're not following the way of Christ, and you're probably those workers of iniquity that Christ is going to say, "Get ye from me so this is a, a, this these ideas. Of explaining how this cause and effect works, we're going to really get into this deeper and deeper as we go. It's absolutely essential in understanding how the universe works and how we relate in that universe and how we can find guidance in the universe if we stop eating from the tree of knowledge alone, which is a tree of vanity. Where we've got our dogma, we've got it figured out, we have our truth, and start eating from the tree of life. And the key to eating of the tree of life is to let love flow through you like a fish through water. So the Egyptians are going to find out the hard way, and we're going to see that. And we have this angel of God which went before the camp of Israel and and went... And went behind them in this pillar and protected them all night. And as it came between that camp. And this strong wind comes up and seems to blow the water out of the way. And the Egyptians pursued them, as we see in verse 23, and went in after them in the midst of the sea, even all the Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. Including those special chariots. And it came to pass that in the morning, watch, the Lord looked unto the hosts of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and of the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians. So, is this another one of those orders going out of order? Verse 24. And so, in verse 25, we see... And took off their chariot wheels. That they. They drave them heavily. So the, the Egyptians said. Let us flee from the face of Israel. For the Lord fighteth. For them against the Egyptians. And again. So. What. The Lord looks out through the pillar of fire. And of the cloud. And the Egyptians are troubled. And they took off their chariot wheels. Some people say that chariot wheels broke. But it actually says they took off. It appears, when I look at the Hebrew, it appears that they actually took them off. And, and they drave them heavily so that the Egyptians said, let us flee. So they're already taking them off because they're already in this position of fleeing. But they're having trouble fleeing because something is taking place. What is taking place that they're having? How are they going to go faster because you took the wheels off? Well, something's happening because of this troubling that's taking place. The Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. So they're already... Something's happening. It's not this instantaneous collapse of the wall just crushing them. They've got time to take the wheels off. Now, if you look at how the chariots were made in those days, we have carvings of how the chariots are made. The, the axles are probably ash. They have very thin, lightweight wheels, very lightweight. I mean, the, the, the actual basket that they stand in is probably just that of basket with a little bit of frame, bowed wood frame probably, maybe some metal and some of the better ones. But this axle is a long axle to give them this wide wheel base. And they can quickly take off wheels. If you're in a battle and you break a wheel, you need to put another wheel on. There's a chariot over there. He's got one broken wheel. I'll take his good wheel. I'll put it on mine. We'll have one chariot. You get on my chariot and we'll go together. Axle break? We can pop that axle out, slide it out from underneath there, put another one in, get wheels going, get going again. But they're taking the wheels off. Why are they taking the wheels off? How is that going to make them go faster? And this is what I believe. I don't believe there was a wall of water there that you could see like a wall like in Cecil B. DeMille. I believe that the sand appeared, and we'll look at this more when I show you the maps, sand appeared, it dried out, it was firm, They could walk across, they could take their carts across, they could take their donkeys across, they could get across, and they were doing just that. And on the one side there was water, on the other side there was water like a wall. And they kept going across. And when they got all the way across, now the Egyptians are coming after, just raging on that dry land, but something happens that troubles them. The water starts coming in again. It, it comes in gradually and the sand is not dry anymore. Now it's silt. You go along the beach uh and it, you go get 10 wheels <laughs> and roll them along the beach in the same rut and you will see a rut developing and the wheels will start getting bogged down. And they will start getting, dig in deeper and deeper into the sand as that water is getting deeper and deeper. One inch, two inch, three inch, four inch. And now all of a sudden, you're trying to go back. You're fleeing now. And you're fleeing with hundreds of chariots, following one behind the other, because it's only so wide, and they're in this narrow gap. One behind the other, and they're making ruts, and the guys behind are digging in, and the guys ahead are and the water is slowing down the horses, and they remove the wheels. And now they're sliding on the sand, not digging in, not digging in with those narrow wheels of the chariot, and they're trying to get out. This is this eight miles, ten miles? I hear different figures, eight, ten, twelve miles long that they're trying to get out. They were almost across. Now the place where they think this happened, they're finding wheels. In the water on both sides. And they're trying to get across and they're taking the wheels off. And that makes sense to me. A wall of water straight up and down because the wind is blowing against it. That doesn't make sense to me. Both are pretty much miraculous. But that makes more sense to me. Is that important? Maybe. Just showing you that you can look at these things in greater detail. And it actually begins to make more and more sense. If we look at them in this greater detail. So they took off the, the chariot wheels and draved them heavily. And we can look at that word heavily, but we don't have time. So they, the Egyptians said, let us flee. They already said, let us flee. That's why they took off the wheels. They're trying to get out of there. And they're hydroplaning miles and miles. Now the horses are somewhat tired already because they just ran 8, nine, ten miles to get to where they were. And now they're trying to get back because the water is coming in. Behind the Israelites and in front of the Egyptians and it's coming in and it's getting like I say one inch, two inch, three inch, four inch and they're getting bogged down and something is taking away the sand and you could actually go and see the topographical area where this took place supposedly according to new findings. So in 27 it says that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength when the morning appeared, and the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Another thing, the the order of this, you think, well, now all of a sudden, they're already fleeing, they're already taking off the wheels, but this has to do with that order, which is why it took so much time to show you that they're... This is the way they write stuff in those days. They say what's going to happen. They say what's happening. And then they give you more information about what just happened. And it's not always chronological as they tell you the story. And the water returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of the Pharaoh that came into the sea after them and remained not so much as one of them. Verse 29, but the children of Israel walked upon the dry land in the midst of the sea and the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. So this is the same word wall that we saw up there earlier. But the dry land's already gone in the course of this story. But now they just gone back and repeated That they were walking on land, but that is, again, these sentences are not in chronological order, which is a common way they write. Verse 30, thus the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore, and Israel saw that great work. Which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord, and believed the Lord, and his servant Moses. And this belief in faith is by what they see with those physical eyes. Some might be beginning to see with spiritual eyes, but generally speaking they're seeing with physical eyes. And they all believe now. And say, yeah, I'm with you Moses. I'm with this Lord guy that you talk about, this existing one, but this is going to be short lived and we will see this in subsequent chapters. And so anyway, we've, I have some maps on the page and, and some pictures on the page and we go through a lot of these verses in the sidebar and we see, you know, in verse three, the entangled you know, suggest that the Pharaoh thinks that they are confused because they did this, they did not go the common way, they went another way. And, and there's, you can actually look at the actual text because I, I'm not going off of your general concordances and all that stuff that say that I actually go back to the original text and show you the, the letters that are in the original text because This is a common thing. A lot of people think Hebrew only has so many words and and it's a very difficult language because it only has so many words. Well, actually, it has lots and lots of words. But they have base words. And they add letters and that makes a new word. And they add a letter in the middle and they add a letter on the end and they take a letter out and it makes another word. It's a very similar word. It has some of the same concepts, but it's actually another word. And if you don't look at that, you may not get what they're talking about so this is actually a strategic route picked by god pharaoh i mean moses may not know exactly what all is going to happen it seems like he doesn't always know in advance but he knows this is the way i got to go and my experience with the holy spirit is this way you do it you don't always you don't always see a map exactly where you're going to go although he knew the terrain he knew the area he had already been there headed to Midian and so they're going this other route but why not go the easier route well Moses explains why but I believe that he actually went this other route because the spirit was guiding him he didn't necessarily know why until he got there because we see at times he'll be questioning God and saying okay what do I do now And, and God gives them the answer. We'll cover this when we cover 15. How do you know when God is guiding you in times of tribulations? How you, how do you know what you should do? You're not going to always have a Moses to say, oh well, go here, go stand there, stand still. You need to be letting God write upon your heart and your mind and guiding you in the spirit, which doesn't mean guiding you in the holy roller, emotional state that is sometimes generated in different churches that's not if if your church is all full of emotion and excitement it's probably not the church established by God that's a church established by emotion and adrenaline and hormones (laughs) and excitement that that's not where it's at it is in being still and knowing God knowing what God wants you to do In verse 4, Pharaoh and his army were emboldened by what they see. They became vengeful. They were going to put judgment on the Israelites and make them afraid. Verse 5, the Pharaoh and his servant mean that they were reacting from their inner heart and mind. And I show you the, the same word, this, the heart of Pharaoh. That actually has a word there that means the inner heart and inner mind. It isn't because he lacked knowledge. It's because his heart was in the wrong place. This is why it will be very important that we get our heart in the right place. And if our heart is in the right place, it will be full of love. Even for our enemy. We'll see in the next chapter where they seem to be singing. Because they're all happy because their enemy is dead. But we will show you that that is not why they are singing. That is not what they are singing about. And because they're supposed to love their enemy. They're not happy that he's dead. They're happy that something else took place. And, well, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but that's... Basically, it's the song of Moses that we'll see. It's the first time that we see an actual song, supposedly a song. We've seen poetry, but we haven't actually seen a song. And this will play all the way up into Revelation because we need to learn the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So I'm setting some of the scene for understanding what that is. We did that in chapter 13 with the leaven. If you don't understand what the leaven is, you're not going to understand the Song of Moses, nor the Song of the Lamb. Because they are both talking about the same thing. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, Fear ye not. That is so common command in the Bible, hundreds and hundreds of times. Fear not. Fear is the absence of the Holy Spirit. And so I can tell you to fear not, but what the fear, if you're afraid, know this, you're missing something. Know this, be still and let that something you're missing come in. And there are things you can do to help bring that in, to draw near that thing. That's why I say help bring it in. You can't make it come in. You can't control God with your actions. You're not witches. You cannot control the truth with your truth. You have to accept the truth. If you want the Lord to fight for you, which we see in verse 14. While we are told to fear not, we'll, we will see the Lord bring fear to the wicked by troubling them. And we'll see this word troubled and destroyed. It's hamam, And uh, well, we first saw it in Exodus fourteen twenty four. That's the first place that it shows up in the Bible. But we'll see it again in Exodus twenty three twenty seven. And also in Deuteronomy 2.15, where we're talking about this fear that the Lord brings. Well, you want the love of the Lord, not the fear that, that destroys. And we'll explain that. Also, I, I said I mentioned this, this word angel, and it's basically messenger. So we should not get too carried away with this idea of, uh, you know, angel. But um, we'll we'll look more at the crowds of uncut stone and altars, but we're going to lead you in to see you find out what worship really is. But we'll have to save that for the next show when we do Chapter 50. God bless. Peace on your house. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory. Dot his holy church dot net.